Begin reading in verse 28. Mark 28, verse 28 through 34. When you got it, say so. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, What is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Amen. God, we love you, and we thank you for your truth that sets us free, God. We thank you for your love that you have poured out in our hearts again this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord God, that calls us into action. And I pray today that we in this place, no matter if it is our first time or our hundredth time being here, God, that we would all be doers of your word, not hearers alone. God, I pray that you would use me these next few moments to speak to your people, that you be glorified. And I thank you for the privilege it is to share your word. And I pray this all in Jesus' good name. And someone said... You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If there's anyone who did not receive an outline, please raise your hand and the ushers will get you an outline. Very important that you have those. Whether you're in a connect group or not, um, you should have those. I mean, we print them out for you, for everyone. And it's good for you to be able to take down some notes, write some things down. Um, And if you're not in a connect group, let me plug that right now and make sure that you understand how important it is to be part of connect. Connect is how we connect with one another. Amen. It is how we engage in relationship. It is how we hold each other accountable. It is how we pray one for the other. It is how we are able to challenge each other, call each other to repentance. It's how we're able to pray for each other. It is how we are able to minister unto each other's life apart from just the preaching of the word of God. Let me explain it to you like this. One of the key things that happens to people is they will be in a service, they will hear the word of God preached, and as the word of God is preached, they may be convicted of their sin, they may be challenged in an area, they may be encouraged, but what happens is when you're not in community, there is no one who is asking you about, you know, what are you doing with the word that you heard on Sunday? Hello? And so what we need is we need people in our lives to call us to repentance or to call us to action or to call us to believe the gospel or to believe the things that we've heard. And so when we connect in community and we discuss the messages that, is, that are preached, you're not able to just hide behind your seat, amen, and be like, well, God is speaking to me or not. No, we're going to ask you, how did he speak to you? We want to know how he, how he spoke to your life and that way you can grow. And it's important that we are in community because God has not called any of us out of darkness to be an island. 
Amen. Glory to God. That is good preaching. I'm just saying. I mean, seriously, some people think they got saved to walk with Jesus and no one else. Hello. It's not like that. We got saved to walk with Jesus on mission with, say with, with. our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. And obviously that can't happen by yourself. You can't fabricate brothers and sisters. Glory to God. So we do need to get connected. But if you don't, if you're not in a connect group, you can see Pastor Chad. He will help you out. We, we have different connect groups that meet throughout the week. And so I would love to see everyone. Our goal is that everyone, say everyone. everyone. Now say everyone includes me. Now, now rub your neighbor like that. Say everyone, everyone. Includes, you. includes you. Rub your other neighbor. Make sure every neighbor gets it. Rub them, rub them. Come on, rub them up. Rub them up. Glory to God. Say everyone means you. No one is excluded. Amen. All right. So today we are going to begin a new series. Say new series. I know Anna Guzman is excited, hallelujah, glory to God. She almost did backflips last week when I said we were done with Acts, but praise the Lord Jesus. I'm excited about this as well. And if you're looking to your outline, you'll see there in the notes in the beginning there, um, we'll read together. It is always good to self-evaluate. And let me pause for a moment. It's always good for you as a person to evaluate yourself, to look at, you know, you should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of who Jesus is, right? That's the goal of every Christian, to grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. And so how do we know that we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of who he is? It is by measuring our lives. It is by looking at the fruit of our lives. It's looking at the fact, am I growing in my prayer life? Am I growing? in my study of the word of God? Am I growing in my devotion to Jesus? Am I growing in my marriage if I'm married? Am I growing in my life with God if I'm a single person? Am I persevering? Am I walking in holiness? Am I, if I'm a young man or young woman, am I growing in my honoring of my parents? I got to look at those areas. As a person who is employed somewhere, are you growing as an employee? Are you serving and doing all things according to the book of Colossians unto the Lord? Amen? We, we have to measure ourselves. We have to evaluate and continually do this. When Pastor Robert does the communion part, in, that there, in, in the communion, he says, if you would judge yourself, God wouldn't have to judge you. That's what the scriptures say, right? And so if I would judge myself, I wouldn't have to receive any, any judgment because I'm judging, and I'm not judging by my own ability. I'm judging by the Spirit of God. Amen? The Bible says the Spirit of God searches all things. And so what happens is we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to self-evaluate. But here's the thing. It's even better to do that when you do so with the use of proven methods of evaluation rather than just our own opinions, right? Because it's easy for me to measure myself because a lot of times us as Christians, we measure ourselves based on the person sitting beside us. Hello? Well, you know, I pray a little more than them. Hello? I don't know if they're reading their Bible or not, you know, but I know I do. You know, I, I know I have some memory verses or you measure yourself by other things. And when it comes to our walk with Jesus, we're supposed to use one proven principle, which is the life of Jesus. Amen. And measure our lives by his life. But what we did as a church is we went and we, did, and, and we, we want to evaluate the church. Because what we want to be at Faith Dome, we do not want to be the best church. We want to be the best church we can be. There's a difference. I'm not worried about being better than the church up the block. I'm not worried about being better than the church across the state. I'm not worried about being better than any church. I want to be the best church that we can be. In other words, I don't have the same gifts and talents as the church up the block, nor do I have the budget. Hello, somebody. 
I'm just saying. And so, I, you know, Pastor Robert, he talks about college, right? And, he, and he's telling me, you know, when you look at, you know, division of college, I don't understand all the divisions, so I'm not going to try to act like I know all of them. But what I know is this, is that he made a real good evaluation. He was like, look, if you go to, is it a D1 college, that's the lower one, or is that the, that, that's the high one? Okay, so you go to a D1 college, right? You're going to experience, like, a lot of talent, a lot more talent than you would in a what? In a Division three college, right? Because the fact is, you can't compare. That's why they have those divisions. So there are certain football teams that should be in Division one. Amen? Other ones should be in Division three. But anyway, the point is, it is based on their recruiting radius. It is based on how many people they can get. So it would be dumb for a Division three, you know, school to try to be better than a Division one. Just statistically, it wouldn't happen, right? So the point is that Division three school should be the best Division three school they can be based on what they have, based on their ability. The same thing for the Division one school. And what shouldn't happen is the Division one school shouldn't look at the Division three school and be like, man, we all that because we're better than them. That doesn't say anything. Hello. So for us as a church, what we want to do, not just myself, because I'm not by myself. I'm not the Lone Ranger with Tonto. Hello. What I'm saying, I am with, you know, leaders and elders and people that are prayerful and seeking God and saying, okay, God, we want to be the best church that we can be. That is our heart. It's not just me by myself. And so what we did back in August is that we asked Dr. Eliu Camacho to come and he's certified years ago in this, in, in this, um, in this seminar called Natural Church Growth. And what Natural Church Growth does is is it, is it, it did this survey among, it, it, there's a book that's written actually, uh, the, last, the last name of the person is Schwartz, but you can read the book if you'd like. But here's what, what Natural Church Growth did, is they went and they surveyed not just nationally, they surveyed churches globally. And what they did was they asked, they, they, they wanted to find out certain characteristics of churches that were growing and churches that were not growing. And what they did was they looked at all of these characteristics. They had all these questions that they were asking, all these factors. And they looked at the churches that were growing. It was over like 300,000 churches, if I'm not mistaken. And they looked at all of these churches and they saw there were certain characteristics that were vibrant and living in churches that were growing. And there were certain characteristics, and those same characteristics were not vibrant in living in churches that were either dying or not growing. And so when he came over here, we asked him, look, we want to do this. And so what he did was he surveyed us. Hallelujah. He didn't survey every church in Oviedo. He surveyed Faith Dome. And so about 30 of us who were in the meeting and stuff like that, we went and we took this survey. It was an anonymous survey, asked about 60 questions or something like that about specific areas. And so when he asked all of these questions, this is proven now. This is not something, I mean, if you go and you look, these are the things that are biblical. Say biblical. biblical. I'm not talking about church growth um, I don't even know the word to use, but I'm not, I'm not talking about the next best thing. That's not what I'm talking about. Natural church growth is about the biblical things that a church should be. Biblical things that a church should be doing. Let me give you some examples of the things that they measure. The first one is they ask about empowering leadership. That's, the, that's a biblical thing. Jesus was an empowering leader, right? Jesus had leaders that he came, his disciples came with him, walked with him, and then what did he do? He empowered them to go and serve. That's what Jesus did. And so churches that are growing from a biblical place, they're going to have empowering leadership. The next thing is they're going to have what is called gift-oriented ministry. So gift-oriented ministry, what is that? You're gifted. Say, I'm gifted. Everybody in this place is gifted in a different way. And so your gifts, your talents, you should be serving God within the church and even outside of the church based on your talents and your abilities, not what you would like to be, but what God created you to be. 
And so what happens is you got to find people that are gifted in certain areas. The third thing was passionate spirituality. And so there's something that should happen to us. We should be passionate about Jesus. If a church is not passionate about Jesus, then there's going to be a problem because that is the heart of what we're going to be, of everything that we're going to do. Are we passionate for the Lord? The next thing was functional structures. Functional structures, you know, God is a God of order, wouldn't you say? Everything that he does in the Bible, he's, he's very functional in his structuring. When he, des- when, he, when he designed the tabernacle and gave those orders under Moses, it was very specific the way that not just the building of the tabernacle, but who was going to minister where and when and what was going to be done and how it was going to happen and how things were going to transfer, how sacrifices were going to be made, how things were going to be washed, how people were going to be anointed. There were functional structures that were there. And when you look throughout the Bible, you find the same thing in the book of Acts chapter 6, you find that as the church was growing explosively, that there was a problem. Their structures began to fail, and they were not able to do what? They were not able to minister effectively to all of the widows. So what did they do? They had to restructure some stuff, and they chose seven people. And so you see that God is a God of structure. And so what we have is we have a clear understanding that if we are going to grow, then we need to have some functional structures. The next thing is, is inspiring worship. Amen. Glory to God. Got to have inspiring worship. There has to be some some focus that is on Jesus. And people look. If people are up here in the worship team and they're just dead, I mean, y'all got a pastor dancing up here. Hello. That's pretty inspirational, but I'm just saying, glory to God. The, the, the thing is, you know, there has to be some inspiration. There has to be passion. If the people who are leading worship, they don't love Jesus, it's going to show. Hello. There's no love for God. I love the pictures. You know, sometimes they take pictures and they post them or they post videos. And see, because I'm sitting back there for now. Amen. Hello. But from there, I can only see the back of everyone's heads. But I love to see the expressions on the face of the worship team because that's inspiring for me when people could care less what you're doing. Hello. I'm just saying, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you do in worship. I know what I do. Oh, y'all ain't say nothing. Because I'm looking at Jesus. I am, I mean, not literally, but I am focused on Jesus. Like I have a picture of him. But what I'm saying is I am focused on him. I am focused on the words coming from my heart, proceeding through my lips, hopefully unto his throne. And I could care less if you're staring at me, clapping, jumping or not. I just hope that you're being as blessed as I am. And that should be the heart of the worship team. And so you got to have inspirational worship. The Bible teaches that. You have to have holistic small groups, which is what we're talking about when we talk about connect. All of these churches that were growing, they were strong in these areas. The next one is you got to have need-oriented evangelism. So it's not just simply telling people that they are going to go to hell without Jesus. You need to make sure that's part of the program. Hello. People need to know why they need Jesus and not just the way you're going to serve them. I'm just saying. But, you're not, but you need to meet people where they're at. And so you see the needs that are going on in your community, in your neighborhoods, and you find a way to minister to people right where they are. That's the way that you are going to evangelize because people know that they are more than your project. Hello. Right? So you have that. And then the last one is loving relationships. So the reason why I shared that is because all of these things are biblical. So these are the eight things. And so I think we have a barrel. Do we have a barrel there? I did send that to you, and I know I sent it to you late, so if you don't have it ready, it's okay. But we're going to see a barrel in a moment, and the reason for that is because all of these things, this barrel, the way that Dr. Eliu Camacho explained it was, if you look at the middle, in, in the inside of the barrel, you see that fluid that is there. And that fluid represents what? It represents people. Okay, It represents the people that are coming to your church. And what you'll notice is all of these planks that make up this barrel, they are all a certain height. But then you see this one right here. This is the shortest one. And so what's going to happen in a, in a couple of moments when just one more ounce of water comes? It's going to start to spill out, right? 
That's what's going to happen. And so what happens is as a church, you have to measure yourself because all of these little planks make up all of these different characteristics we just talked about. And as God brings people, what will happen is there will be certain areas if you don't have good functional structures or you don't have holistic small groups or you don't have something that is doing well, then what will happen is that will be the area where your church is weak and you're not able to grow the way that God wants you to grow. And so if you don't ever measure yourself, you think, oh, man, these people are not holy or these people don't love Jesus. And it could be that you are not paying attention to yourself and not looking at where you need to be growing. That's what happens. And so what we did was when we took the survey, you can look back down at your papers here. When we took the, sur- when we took the survey, it was conducted by him. We learned that we were lacking. And when I say lacking, I want to explain that to you. We were lacking in loving relationships. We were lacking in need-oriented evangelism. And we were lacking in functional structures. Now... The highest number you could get was a 60. In the survey was the highest number you can get. And so in most everything, we scored a 55 or above. And you see here that we got a 45. So 45, that's only 15 from 60, right? So that's not that bad. Right? I'm just saying, I'm trying to make a point to you. It wasn't like we were totally horrible and lacking in this area. It was that those were the areas where we scored the lowest in. So we scored the lowest in loving relationships. We scored the lowest in need-oriented, or second, second from the lowest, need-oriented evangelism. And the last one was in functional structures. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about functional structures because you could really care less about functional structures. Hello. I'm just saying, if I started talking about structuring and all this and that, believe me, us as elders, we've been in meeting after meeting, and we're still trying to get through the eldership process, the longest process I've ever gone through in my life. And trust you me, you wouldn't want to hear about all that. But here's what we will talk about. We will talk about loving relationships, and we will talk about need-oriented evangelism. And what we're going to do is for the next four weeks, we're going to deal with this topic, and it's called, What Does Love Have to Do With It? That's the title of this series of messages that I'm going to preach. It's going to be, what does love have to do with it? What, is, what does love really matter in all of this? And, and Pastor Robert gets up here, and he says every week to you that we're committed to loving God, growing together, reaching others, and serving, right? And so what we're going to do is, as a church, we want to look at how does the love of God and the love for God motivate all of those things? Because in there is need-oriented evangelism. We should be doing those things. And so today, we'll start dealing with the first one, which is love which, which is love for God. And next week, we'll really dig deeply into loving relationship. But I'll touch on that a little bit today. So over the next few weeks, we'll be dealing with that. Loving God, understand this, this is your third, your third paragraph there. Loving God is the primary component. Please hear me when I say this. Loving God is the primary component to all of our obedience to the commands of God. If you do not love God, you are not going to obey his commands no matter what. You may do some of the things he says to do, but if you don't love him, you will not. But it goes deeper than that because our deepest motivation must be rooted in the love of God. Say of God. See, there is a difference between our love for God and God's love for us. There's a difference. And what happens is the deepest-seated motivation inside of us should be the love of God because if that is not, then what will happen is we will either become liberals who take for granted the grace of God or we will become legalists who live out of duty rather than delight. See, if I am just doing things because I have to do them, then I don't really know the love of God. If I am just obeying what God says, if I am just treating my wife the way that I should, if I am just being the employee that I'm supposed to be, if I am just being a good neighbor that I'm supposed to be because I have to, then I haven't understood the love of God. 
My heart has not been changed. And you know what's going to happen? When my spouse fails me, I will stop loving her the way that I should because my motivation is not the love of God that I've been changed by, but it is her response to my love. When, 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 when the love of God is not the motivation for me being the employee that God has called me to be, when I don't get the raise that I know that I deserve, my production starts to go down because, you know, y'all ain't appreciating me. Hold on a second. But I thought that we were supposed to do all things for the glory of God, and we were supposed to be storing up for us some stuff in heaven. So maybe you didn't get that raise, but you keep being the light because of the love of God that has gripped your heart. And you want to make sure that no matter what, that everyone sees the light of Jesus in you. I'm just saying. And so what will happen to us is that we'll be these legalists that it's about duty or we will be the same. And listen, they are both. I want to make this very clear. Being a legalist is just as bad as being a liberal. Because you may be that one that says, yeah, you know, I got to do all these things and it's grudging and it's, oh, my goodness. And then you could be that other person who says, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I'll just ask for forgiveness, maybe. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do how because you know what? God hasn't got with me yet, so I'm okay. See, that's... I'm, that is the only reason why some of y'all are liberals. And I said it, some of y'all, hello. It is because you have not seen the judgment of God. So you think you can act a fool and God is not paying attention. You think you can keep living outside of his will and it's okay. It is not okay. The Bible says that some people's judgment is seen immediately and other people's judgment is following them. I'm here to let you know you need to wake up if you are being a liberal, acting like God doesn't see what you are doing. He sees it all and he wants to set you free with his love. And liberate you so you can live a life of obedience that comes out of an understanding of what he has done. See, they're, 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 but they're both as bad because one of you thinks you deserve some stuff and you over here could care less. But what we need to do is we need to be those people who are overtaken and transformed by the love of God. Understanding the love of God, and I want to drive this home for the next four weeks, hopefully, and for the rest of my life, but understanding the love of God is the key to growing in our love for God. Understand, and listen, the Bible says that the love of God is beyond all knowledge. So what that means is that I'm going to do my best to convey God's love, and I'm going to do my best to commit. But you know what? It is still beyond my full grasp because literally, church, when I really look in the mirror, I'm just saying, I don't know about any of you in here, and I don't say this, you know, to be falsely humble, but I'm being serious. When I look in the mirror of God's word, I realize, my goodness, I look so much not like Jesus in my motivations, in my intentions, in my attitudes, and the way that I think about things. I mean, I look so much not like him. And yet, he loves me. Despite me, he loves me. He loves me regard. Listen, I, I, you, you, we need to understand. We can do nothing to make God love us more or love us less. Do you, do you get that in your heart? I mean, in your spirit. Do you understand the weight of that? That you and I, listen, it is number one. It is liberating to understand that I can do nothing to make him love me more and I can do nothing to make him love me less. See, because some of us over here on the, on the legalistic side, right, we think that, you know, I've done certain things. And I'm not going to name them, but we think we've done certain things and so, man, God is really pleased with me. And that may be true because you're living by faith, but does he love you more? See, we think he does. If we're real, we think he does, but he doesn't. 
He can't. God, listen to this. God is incapable of loving you any more than he already does. Do you understand that? He is incapable of loving you more than what he already does. His love is infinite. His love never fails. The Bible says his love is everlasting. You understand what everlasting is? It means that his love goes on and on and on. You know, we sing the song, and it goes on and on and on and on. It go, well, it goes on and on and on and on and on. Much longer than the four bars we sing it. I'm just saying. It goes on and it goes on and it continues and continues. And it is the love of God that God wants to grip our hearts with so we can understand the fullness of his love for us and we can live for his glory, for his honor, and not for ourselves. Repeat this after me, the first thing. The greatest love will produce the greatest love. So let's look at our Bibles together because we find here that Jesus is being questioned by this scribe. And so if you look back, you know, we're not going to do that right now for time's sake. But if you look back in chapter 12, you will find that Jesus was questioned two times prior to this. The first time he was questioned, he was questioned by the Pharisees. The Pharisees asked him a question. They said, should we pay taxes? And Jesus is like, look, man, give, you know, give me a coin whose inscription is on it. Give to God what is God's and, you know, and, and give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so he rebukes them. But all they revealed, the Pharisees revealed, was the greed of their heart. When they came to him asking about, well, should we give this money to Caesar? They're just revealing their greedy hearts. They wanted someone to say, no, you don't have to do that. Or, you know, well, you're a breaker of the law. And so he has the first question. The second question is, the Sadducees come to him and they, say, they come to him real, real slick like. And they're like, listen, we got this, we got this situation. There's this lady, she gets married. Her husband dies. And the law says, if the husband dies, that the next brother should take her as wife and, you know, have children for, you know, for, for, the, for the brother. And he says, well, all of them died. So when they all go to, go to, go to heaven, um, who's going to be her husband? And Jesus is like, you are foolish. You do not know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. And so he goes and he begins to explain. And, and all they reveal is they reveal their hypocrisy. Because they're coming and asking this. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. They were just trying to trip Jesus up. So they're showing themselves to be hypocrites. And so this, this scribe who also, if you look at it, and you can just write this down, but there's two other areas where this particular story is at or this narrative is, and that is in the book of Matthew chapter 23, 22, verses 34 through 40, and also in the book of Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28. So that's Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, and also Luke 10, 25 to 28. And so what happens is this person that is called a scribe here in the book of Mark, he is actually called a lawyer. Or someone who is an expert, and he's, he's an expert in the law. And so he comes, and he tries the final time to jam Jesus up by asking him this question. What is the greatest command of all? What is the first, what is the first commandment? That word, it means what is the foremost, what is the most important commandment? And when you look at this, he wasn't necessarily asking which one of the 613 laws, right? Because there were 613 laws that the Jews knew that they had to keep. There was 365 of them were negative and 216 of them were positive. And so there were 365 thou shalt nots and there were, you know, 216 of them that thou shalt. And so he wasn't asking, like, which one of those? It was more he was trying to ask, like, what commands are the most important? He was trying to get to the heart of the commandments here with Jesus. He was asking this question. And the reason why I say he's different is because Jesus says something powerful in verse 34. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. 
And so this guy was a little bit different. He was still part of the mob trying to trick Jesus up, but there was some sincerity to what he was asking. And this was a big debate. And so he was asking, what is a type of command? And so the way that Jesus replies is he replies with the daily um, recitation of the devout Jews. Every morning they said something called the Shema. And it was a part of their prayer every day. And when they woke up in the morning, they said this. He said that they would say this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when they woke up every day, the first thing that was coming out of their mouth, not just that time, but in the closing of their day, they would say the same thing, this prayer. They would communicate this prayer as a reminder that there is one true God. There is one God. And so he's sitting here and he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. And what he does is he says that, he says, this is the greatest commandment. And he says, and you shall love the Lord your God. So not only, here it is. The revelation is this. There is one God who is true, who is holy, who is righteous. And because you know this, you are now responsible to respond to him. It's not enough to know who God is. It's not enough to have a functional knowledge of what Jesus has done. It's not enough. We have to. We must respond to him. And what God does in the Shema prayer is he communicates to them, if you know that there is one true God, then you are to love that God. You are to honor that God. You are to glorify that God. And then what he does is he adds Leviticus 19, 18, and we'll get into that one more next week when he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It should be noted, and I want you to make this distinction, that there is, there, there is a difference between commandment one and commandment two. There is a difference between loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The reason why this is important is because in our days, people will say, well, you know what? I did good for my neighbor, so that shows that I love God. Not true. Did you hear what I just said? Just because you act lovingly or you did something good for someone does not mean you love God. But let me flip it around because this is where it gets crazy. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. You see, so loving your neighbor doesn't say you love God. Hello. But not loving your neighbor says you can't love God. That's, that, that's serious. I mean, the book of 1 John makes it clear. It's like, you know, how can you say you love God who you can't see and you can't love your brother who you can see? You're a hypocrite. You're lying to yourself. And so what happens, he communicates this. He lets them know this. We will never, and here, here's what we got to get. I said the greatest love will produce the greatest love. It is the love of God that will produce in our heart a great love for him. It is his love revealed to us that will produce a love that responds and overflows to him. Not in duty, but in delight. Not in that I have to do this, but you come to the place where you say, I get to do this. This is what happens to us. And so if you look, and I'm just going to give you this scripture, but... If you look at the book of Hosea, Hosea is, is, is a powerful book. And when you, when, when you look at the book of Hosea, you will find that this is a story of Hosea, who is this prophet, and this woman who is his wife by the name of Gomer. Right? Crazy story. If you know the story, you know what I'm saying. If you don't know the story, let me, let me clue you in. What is happening is, is Gomer is a prostitute. You hear what I just said? Gomer is Hosea's wife. And I also said Gomer's a prostitute. Did, 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 that, did that relate? And so what happens is God tells Hosea, you know your wife? 
I want you to go buy her back. Y'all ain't hear me. He didn't just say go marry her. He said go buy, pay the price for the prostitute, buy her back. Wow. <laughs> Glory to God. Hosea, and Hosea is like, what? <laughs> Siri, God, for real? Like, why, why do I got to be like this picture of the gospel? Can I just tell the people about your love for them? Can I just explain? Because the reason why God is doing this is because he's saying, listen, I want Israel to know this is how I love them. I want Israel to know that she, and that means everyone in lost humanity, they have gone after other gods. They have gone after other husbands. They have gone after other lovers. They have gone after others. And I am saying, I am going to buy them back. I am going to pay for their salvation. I am going to buy, and and I'm not just going to buy them back. I'm going to love them like no one has ever loved them before. And so Hosea got the responsibility <laughs> to be the picture of this gospel, to show Israel. So every time, because Israel, they knew Gomer. They knew that she was out there. Hello. You know, if they would have had cars, she would have been walking up to somebody like, hey. Holla. What's up, daddy? I'm saying she would have been like that, right? They knew who she was, and they knew who Hosea was. They knew this is a man of God praying. They're like, what's wrong with this woman? They knew this, and it was a picture before their face of the love of God, of the power of the gospel. And see, when you look at this verse in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, he talks about, I will betroth you, and I will make you my wife. And he goes to other, and he said, and then, in the last part of the verse, and then you will know, say no. That word know is the word yada, which is the same word that means that Adam knew. Adam yadad Eve. They had intimacy. Hello. And so what he was saying is, after I make you my wife, after I buy you back, then you will know me. You will know me intimately. You will know my love. And so what happens is this. We need to get this in our heart and understand we can only really know or be intimate in knowledge with God when he reveals himself to us through his goodness, through his mercy, and through his kindness. Now let me turn you to the New Testament. I want you to turn here. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 2 with me. The book of Romans chapter 2. And we'll start reading in verse 1 because people take this scripture that I'm about to read to you so far out of context. That's the reason why we're going to read from verse 1 and we're not just going to jump to verse 4. I want you to hear what is being said here. We should probably go back to chapter 1 because, so you can really get what God is saying here. But I want you to understand this. You know what? I'm going to do this just, for, just, just, just to make you laugh. Look at verse 4 with me. Okay? Ignore the first part. Okay, ignore or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? And just read this part with me. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So people be like, look, I just preach about God's goodness because that's what's going to lead you to repent. That is not what the scripture is saying. That is not what your Bible is saying. Now, let's read it in context. Let's see if we can understand why Bishop is saying that's not what it's saying. Because it is true. The goodness of God is what leads you to repentance. But I want you to understand how you know the goodness of God. Let's get there. It says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. 
For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now let me help you to understand some context here. The Jewish people were judging the Gentiles of being unworthy of salvation because they were Gentiles. Because, and, and I mean, they ate pork. They didn't worship on Saturday. They didn't, you know, they, they touched unclean stuff. They were ungodly. And so they were doing all of these things. They were out there, you know, they were having orgies. And I mean, it, it was a crazy situation. And so the Jews that were in Rome were like, yo, these people don't deserve the same benefit that we do. And so Paul is like, listen, you are inexcusable. He's like, because while you may not do the same things they do, you are just as guilty as they are. Because the same law that judges them, that you're judging them by, judges you as well. And so he's talking about what? We see the chapter starts off with judgment, but I thought we were just supposed to talk about goodness. I thought that's what it was about. It was about God's goodness. No, there is judgment. He's saying, look, you are being judged because of the same thing. He says in verse 2, he says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think, oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Hold on a second. Time out. We're not talking about goodness. We're talking about God's wrath here. We're talking about God's judgment. And then he says this, or do you despise the riches? Oh, see, now it makes more sense. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance? When I looked at the word forbearance and I was thinking about it, it was kind of like someone who sits there, right? And there's like a gnat that keeps flying for them and they don't do anything to it. They just ignore it, right? That's like what forbearance is here. And the reason why this is important is because of the next word. The next word is long suffering. The reason why I bring that example is because every time that you and I sin, it's like that to God. It's like a gnat just continuing in his face and he could smash you immediately. And he forbears your sin. He forbears your foolishness. He forbears you communicating things about him that are not right. He forbears that. Instead of crushing you on the spot, he demonstrates something else. He demonstrates restraint. Or his long-suffering. See, long-suffering is different because long-suffering is this patience that is toward you. It's him being good to you when you don't deserve his goodness. It is him loving you, even though you don't deserve his love. That is what he does. And it says, or do you not despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Verse 5 says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What he's saying is this, don't despise God's goodness. Don't despise his forbearance. Don't despise his patience and his long-suffering. His goodness should bring you to your knees in brokenness saying, God, thank you for not destroying me. Thank you for not listening to my foolishness. Thank you for not responding when I cursed you. Thank you for not being the way you could be when I questioned you. Thank you for not doing to me what I deserve. It's supposed to bring us to repentance, but you and I will never understand the goodness of God until we understand the severity of God. 
So when I just preach that God is good, you will never understand that until you really look into the mirror and understand the gospel truth, which is that you are totally depraved, that you are a sinner by birth, and you are a sinner by nature, and you are a sinner by your actions, that you choose to offend God, that you choose to disobey God, that you choose to ignore God, that that is what you do, and you deserve his wrath, and his wrath is eternity separated from him in hell for all of eternity, never having a way of escape. There is no annihilation. There is no day that you're just going to be there and all of a sudden not be no more. The Bible says that that is the place where the worm does not cease, where the fire does not cease. It is a place where there is torment and pain. That is the wrath of God. And if we do not understand that, we don't understand the goodness of God when we look at the cross of Jesus, that Jesus comes and dies in our place. And that way we do not have to experience nor endure one moment separated from God. But all of our life can be in his presence and intimacy and relationship experiencing his goodness not from a place of ignorance that God is just good to me but from a place of appreciation that God loves me and I love him back we will never understand that and verse 5 should make you tremble verse 5 listen It should make you think, oh my goodness, am I impenitent? Am I I not allowing God to speak to me? Am I unwilling to repent of my sin? Am I unwilling to accept God's gracious gift of his son? Do I think I can save myself? Do I think that I am okay? If that is you, you are storing up for yourself the wrath of God. But please hear me, God doesn't want any of us to experience his wrath. He wants us to experience his love. He wants us to experience his deliverance because that is why Jesus died. So we would no longer be known by that old person. We would no longer be known by that old name. So that Gomer would no longer be known as the whore of Israel, but she could be known as the wife of Hosea. That I would no longer be known as that person who did not want God, but I am known as his son, as his servant. That when people look at me and hear, you used to gangbang and you used to do drugs and you used to do all of this, they're like, there is no way. And you know why? It's not because I'm so great. It's because he is great and because he has cleaned me up to such a degree that people can't even fathom that this son of God was a son of the devil like that. That is what transformation is about. The greatest Love will produce the greatest love. And when we have the love of God guarding and gripping our hearts, our lives are changed. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. The greatest commandment will lead us to the greatest obedience. When they ask Jesus the question, what is the greatest commandment? What is the foremost commandment? He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. The first commandment, he communicates this to them. And we're called to love God with all of this part of our life. I just want to give you a quick education here on, 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 the, on the word love in your Bible. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, there are, there are three words that are used for love specifically. One of them is ahaba. The other one is Dad. And those two words are utilized for sexual love or sensual love. But then there is a higher type of love, and that is described by the word Hesed. 
And that is a love that, is, that involves loyalty or steadfastness and kindness. And, it's, and, and sometimes it's rendered as loyalty, but most times it's rendered as steadfast love. In the New Testament, which is where we are, the words are in Greek. And so in this Greek, there are three words that are utilized in the Bible for love. There's a fourth word in the Greek that is used for love that is not in the Bible, and that is the word eros. That is where we get the word erotic. And it is where we get, you know, arousal. And so it is the love that is talking about the love between a husband and a wife. That is the Greek word that is the equivalent to a hob and dod. And so this word describes that, but the New Testament never uses that word eros. But there are three words in the New Testament that are utilized for love. And the first one is phileo. And it means natural affection is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so it is talking about that, a brotherly love that is not necessarily fraternal, but it is a love that is brotherly, a love that cares about one another. And then you will find this other word, storge, that is used in a compound. That one is utilized to describe, is, is utilized to describe us in relationship to our family members. And so those are the two loves, but the one that is utilized the most most in the New Testament is the word agape, which is the word that Jesus uses here. And Jesus says, you are to agape me. And when you look at the word agape, there is, there, there, there's, it's tough to make the distinction because the word agape is a word that describes a benevolent love. It is a love that is not responding to you because of your beauty. It is a love that is not responding to you because you are so amazing. It is not responding to you because you got a haircut. Hello. You know, because sometimes, you know, you go, you get a haircut, you know, you get a little blow dry, you come home and your husband's like, mm-hmm. That's Eros, not Agape. Hello. I'm just saying, let's keep it right. <laughs> You know, sometimes we do good stuff, you know, and, 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 and we think that that, that, but that is not agape love. And so what happens is agape generally assumed to mean moral goodwill that proceeds from esteem, principle, or duty rather than attraction or charm. Agape is very similar in meaning to the word hesed that we talked about, which deals with um, loyalty, steadfastness, and kindness because it is a word of dedicated love. Understand that. When Jesus is saying, I want you to agape me, he is saying, I want you to have a devoted type of love. The best picture that we see in this, when when we look at agape and and the difference between agape and phileo, which is this brotherly love, is when you look at the book of John, I believe it's chapter 21, where Jesus is speaking to Peter. And Peter had denied Jesus, and Jesus says to him, do you agape me? Or in English, he says this, he said, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And he says, well, feed my sheep. And he says, do you love me? He says, take care of my sheep. Do you love me? So when you read that in English, it's like, okay, that's a cool conversation. Don't really understand it. But read it in the Greek and it's different. Jesus says to him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. He repeats it again. He says, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, I phileo you. And then the third time he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And he's like, Lord, you know that I do. The reason why Peter does that, and the reason why he changes it, is because agape, for some people, is a cold, non-emotional love. Phileo, there's emotion to it. There's a passion to it. And so what Peter was trying to do to Jesus was he was trying to up him one, right? And he was saying, man, I don't agape you, I phileo you. And he was missing it. Jesus was saying, do you love me with the highest type of love? 
That's what he's asking. Do you love me with the highest type of love? The love that is unconditional. The love that if you are going to call, if it's going to cost you your life, you're not going to deny me. Hello. See, Peter was missing this. He didn't understand. Jesus was trying to communicate to him, son, you have phileoed me all this time. And your phileo said to me, you will die with me. And guess what you did? You denied me. Your phileo is not enough to lead you the way that you should be led. And so what we see is a lot of people think that agape is a dry love. That's not it. But agape does not stop loving because someone becomes unloving. Agape doesn't stop loving because a situation becomes difficult. Agape doesn't give up because things got tough. Agape continues on no matter what because agape is a love that is decisive and and, and it's a judgment that is made and I am going to love because I am loved. That's what agape is. So he tells us to agape him But he says this, he says, to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And I could easily just tell you what he's saying there is he's saying, love me with everything that you are. But I want to look at those words for a moment. It's going to take a moment to look at them. He says to love you with all of what? The first thing he says, to love God, to agape him with all of your heart. So what is he saying? You should love him passionately. You should love him with the depth of your emotion. With all of your emotion, you should love him. With all of your emotional strength, you should love him. The second thing he says is you should love him with all of your soul. And so what he's saying is your soul is who you are. And so what he's saying, not not, not your physical being, but it's who you are here. And what he's saying is you should love him with all of your heart, all of your emotion, but also with all of who you are, with all of your being, with everything that is your personality, you should love him. And then he says, and you should love him with all of your mind. See, here's the problem for us Christians. For some reason, we think that God doesn't want us to love him intellectually. Are you hearing me? We think that God wants us to check our brain in at the door. Like, you know what? You can't think and be a Christian at the same time. You can't think and believe the Bible at the same time. But look what the Bible says. Love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. In other words, we should love him intellectually. We should think about the the things that God says, and we should measure them. You know, look at this. I love this little booklet that I have. It's by Ray Comfort, and it's it's called The Scientific Facts That Are in the Bible. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. And what he does is he goes in there and he quotes scriptures to you. And he gives you scriptures that are talking about scientific stuff. And then what you can do is you look at those those scriptures that he's talking about. And he tells you, and science didn't find this out until 2,000 years after this was written. Hello? One of them that I thought was pretty cool, um, and y'all can try, I I didn't even study out the science on this, but it was the, the topic of circumcision. And he said, You know, God told the Israelites to circumcise their children on the eighth day, right? And so some people are like, well, why did God choose the eighth day? And so there's something in the body of the child that only, the science found this out later, that only on the eighth day, the blood clotting is higher on the eighth day than any other day. Wouldn't that be important for people who are living out in a desert in a place that is not really clean? It would be important that the blood clots and that we stop bleeding. Hello? Right? So infection would be less likely and all that stuff. Isn't God kind of wise? I think so. I'm just saying. 
But it's scientific proof. So what what I'm trying to tell you is, God says, love me with all your heart. Love me with all of your soul. Love me with all of your mind. Don't be an idiot, Christian. Be a smart Christian. Know what your Bible says. Know how to talk to people about Jesus. Know how to defend the faith because there's plenty of ways to defend the Bible. Hello. And then lastly, he says to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. And that was pretty easy because he's saying with all of your might, with everything that you do, with all of your force, don't love God, you know, halfway, mamby-pamby-like. Love God with, with vigor. Love God with passion. Love him. Wake up early when you don't want to wake up and pray. Stay up late crying out to him when you know that you need to. Make sure that you go hard after God. Don't expect everyone else to spoon feed you. Hello? Love him with all of your being, not because you can do it, but because his love enables you to do it. Growing in our love for God is the only way that we will be faithful to respond to him in obedience. That's the bottom line. The greatest command will produce the greatest obedience. But if we are not walking in that love that we're called to walk in, then you know what? We're not going to obey him the way that he requires. The last point that I'll make, and I'll need you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2 to make this one. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, but I want you to say this with me first. Great obedience obedience. must be dependent dependent. upon a continual kindling of the greatest command. Great obedience must be dependent upon the continual kindling of the greatest command. So the book of Revelation starts with us glorifying Jesus and the revelation that is going to come from him. And in chapter 2 is when he begins to speak to the churches. And there is no coincidence that the first rebuke that he gives to the first church is regarding love. He could have waited until the seventh church, the third church. He could have waited until the second church. But he makes it a point to speak to the first church. And he says to the church of Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus is an important church because we have the book of Ephesians. We know that Paul was there. It's a, fa- it's a, it's a church that was established in powerful doctrine and things were, you know, were supposed to be right there. And he says this. He says, to the angel of the church of, uh, of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. This sounds like an amazing church, don't it? I'm, I'm just saying that that's amazing. You want people that are working for Jesus. You want people that are laboring for the kingdom. You want people who are patient. You want people who cannot bear with those who are evil, right? And he says, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So these people, they know their Bible. They test everything that comes from pulpits and from people's lives, right? And he says in verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my, na- for my name's sake and have not become weary. Amazing church. And he says, nevertheless, I, this is Jesus speaking, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You're amazing. You know your Bible. You got memory verses out the, you know. There you go. The wazoo. Glory to God. You, you, you memorize paragraphs of scripture. I mean, you can quote the Bible. You know. You know 
what's right and what's wrong. You persevere. You're doing things for the kingdom. It is amazing. And Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first love. You do great things. I'm not going to rebuke you for that. You do wonderful things. That's awesome. But you have left the most important thing, and that is your first love. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he comes to this church and he gives them all these accolades and tells them they're great. He gives them another compliment at the end there too because, you know, they, they don't like, you know, certain people. And so he does that, but he tells them there's one thing lacking, your first love. You've left that first love. And so it brings at least me to a good question. What is our first love and how is it measured? Is it measured by what we're doing or is it measured by why we're doing it? Because it would seem to me it's not about what we're doing. It's about why I'm doing it. He says, return to your first works. He calls them back to works again. He doesn't tell them to stop doing anything they're doing, but he calls them back to the first works because there was a place and time when all that they were doing was motivated and rooted in and grounded in and coming from one thing, and that was their love for God. And it's because they were overwhelmed by their love, by, by the love of God, and they were moved by their love for God. And here's the thing that we got to get, church, is that God, and the reason why he's rebuking them is because God is not calling us to grudging, forced, painful, religious, dry labor for his kingdom, but he is calling us into a bond servanthood. He's not calling us to, to serve him. And, and, and I love, I love that there, there, there was a quote by John Piper that I think is one of the most amazing quotes. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. Because for some reason, for us as Christians, we think that our satisfaction and God's glorification don't mesh. Because our sinful nature, our sinful desires are opposed to him. And so we think, you know what, I have to let go of all of these things that I love in order to serve him. But that is because you have never really tasted of his love. Because when you taste of his love and you taste of his goodness, when you serve him and you experience his flow of life through you, there is nothing like that. Nothing even compared to the sin that you love. The problem with us is that we think we're giving up something great and it's only because we don't realize what we're getting is greater. We don't realize that we are getting the great I am. That we are getting a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. And so we have to come to that place where we look and say, God, have I left my first love? Have I left my first love? Have I left that place where I should be with you, where you are really my motivation, where you are really my passion? We must remember that we will never continue to grow in our love for God if we are not continually growing in our understanding of God's love for us. We will not. Romans chapter 5, it says that we have this hope. And, and, and what, what he talks about is this hope that is there because the love of God 
is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is when I'm in relationship with Jesus, what should be occurring is that the love of God should be being continually poured into my life. I should become overwhelmed continually by the love of God, by the revelation of who he is. That's what should be happening because that is what the Holy Spirit does. And I close with this. The problem for some of us in this place is that we have issues accepting the love of God. Some of us think, man, God can't love me because I am A, B, C, and D. I don't know what those things are. You know, you're, you listen to me preach about God's love, and you're like, man, I deserve all that wrath you talked about, but there's no way God can love me. There's no way God can forgive me. The reason why Jesus went through everything that he did was so that way God could love you. That's the reality. See, some of us can't accept the love of God because we had a horrible parent or horrible parents. And so whenever we think about someone loving us, like father loving us, there's a bad correlation, and we can't get past that. Some of us can't accept the love of God because of our spouse or because of our situation. I'm just saying, some of us cannot, we can't experience the love of God, and we can't be embraced by it. But here's the thing, if you and I cannot accept the love of God, we will never fully be transformed by him because we will never fully trust him. See, my daughter trusts me because she knows I love her. She trusts me. She trusts my counsel. She trusts me in dangerous situations, except roller coasters. <laughs> Some roller coasters, she'll trust me, but others she'll be like, mm, no. It's not really she doesn't trust me. She doesn't trust the roller coaster, but really she don't trust me. It's like, Dad, you're going to make me throw up or something. The point is, she trusts me. She trusts me because she knows that I love her. She knows that I have her best interest in mind. And listen, if you're in this place sincerely and you can't, you have issues accepting the love of God, we're going to sing a song of worship just talking about how he loves us. And I really pray that you will let the Holy Spirit penetrate your heart today and that you will let God do a new work and a fresh work inside of your heart. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I'm going to ask you to bow your head as the music ministry comes forward. And I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to open this altar up. And there's pastors, there's ministers, there are people of God that would love to pray with you. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't know his love, today is an opportunity for you to come to know his love. Today is a day for you to turn from your sin and to turn to your Savior. Today is a day for you to do that. And maybe you know Jesus, but you are having trouble experiencing his love. I beg you, I plead with you today, please don't stay seated in your seat if you know the Holy Spirit is calling you to this altar. Please don't stay in your seat if you know God is calling you to come here and allow him to work with you. Don't sit there. Like God didn't speak to you today. Because he wants to do something. He wants to heal some broken areas. He wants to fill you with a fresh understanding of his love for you. And so I'll pray for you and then i open the altar. Heavenly Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would glorify your name, my God, in the life of each and every person that is in this place, Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon them, God. And that you, dear Lord, would draw them unto you today, Lord, and that you would fill them, Lord God, with a fresh love and a great passionate desire for you, God. Father, I pray against every wall. I pray against every barrier. I pray that you would yes, grant God. repentance where repentance is needed, God. Yes, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would draw the hearts of people unto you yes, right now. 
Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can. Pray this in your good name. Thank you.